the Marine Corps values. Honor. This is the bedrock of our character. It is the quality that empowers Marines to exemplify the ultimate in ethical and moral behavior. To never lie, cheat, or steal. To abide by an uncompromising code of integrity. To respect human dignity. And to have respect and concern for each other. It represents the maturity, dedication, trust, and dependability that commit Marines to act responsibly, be accountable for their actions, fulfill their obligations, and hold others accountable for their actions. Courage. The heart of our core values. Courage is the mental, moral, and physical strength ingrained in Marines that sees them through the challenges of combat and the mastery of fear, and to do what is right, to adhere to a higher standard of personal conduct, to lead by example, and to make tough decisions under stress and pressure. It is the inner strength that enables a Marine to take that extra step. Commitment. This is the spirit of determination and dedication within members of a force of arms that leads to professionalism and mastery of the art of war. It promotes the highest order of discipline for unit and self and is the ingredient that instills dedication to core and country 24 hours a day, pride, concern for others, and an unrelenting determination to achieve a standard of excellence in every endeavor. Commitment is the value that establishes the Marine as the warrior and citizen others strive to emulate. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, episode 23, brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason, here with Rich, and our guest today is Jimmy Letchford the former director of CrossFit International and Marine Infantry Officer, where he's currently platoon commander at 4th Force Reconnaissance Company. He's a Naval Academy graduate, class of 2003, was a dear friend of Travis Mannion's, whose family carries on their son's legacy at the Travis Mannion Foundation, and he's a dear friend of ours. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. I'm honored to be here. All right, let's start with, with service. Let's start with what drove you to the Naval Academy, whether that was your, your youth. How'd you grow up? What led you to the Naval Academy? Yeah, well, look, I, I'm from New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. It's on the Jersey side and out there, you know, it's wrestling, football, baseball. You know, that's, that's life, right? And so I started wrestling around four years old and it became part of my everyday, you know, life. And so... As I was growing up, my old man would take me to wrestling camps all over the country. And uh, one of the ones that was most fond for me was the time I went to the Naval Academy and saw the wrestling room. And I saw this beautiful jet outside the wrestling room and midshipmen marching around and yelling and whatnot. And I just kind of fell in love with that place. And my old man, you know, was just super supportive of it. And we continued to go to the wrestling camps down there. And I was like, man, it would be really cool to wrestle for a, a, a college with a jet outside, you know? <laughs> but was it the only one? Was it the only spot you went to with a jet outside? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, all the amazing schools and wrestling schools, um, you know, they're, they're around the country. And I just focused, there's a jet, there's the wrestling room. That's where I want to go. So we've had a lot of people on with a service background on here. It's, it's what unites this show for us is, is a commitment to others. And yet we always hear, I mean, Rich talks about, he went to go see the Green Berets, you know, before he went special forces, you know, I, I saw the born identity and then I went and 
applied to the CIA and later realized that Jason Bourne was a Green Beret first. So I'm like, okay, well, I got to go do that. The, the point is, is it's always the cool guy stuff. You see it and you don't know, you don't know anything, but you're like, I want to do that. Yeah. And that's, that, and that's kind of how it was for me. Right. And so I got, I got fixed on this jet, but then when I started really, and I was getting older. Right. And so like, I see this when I'm eight, I go back when I'm nine and when I'm 10, and then it really starts to come to life. What actually happens at the Naval Academy, how the opportunity, you know, can affect me, but then also my country and whatnot. And so I started looking into what do I want to do? Do I want to fly jets? Do I want to be a Marine? Do I want to be a SEAL? And I really got, a, I got fixed on being a SEAL. And so going over the years, people were like, where do you want to go to college? And where do you, what do you want to do with your life? Which back then when we were growing up, as you guys know, it's just like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a SEAL badly. So much in fact that when I was applying to the Naval Academy and other colleges, I got into those colleges. I got into West Point and I got into the Air Force Academy, in fact, um, but got into the Naval Academy, but could not get a nomination. And, and for those that don't know about the, the academies, the service academies, not only do you have to get accepted by the school, but you also have to have a nomination from a congressman or a senator or someone who holds higher office that has one of these nominations. I didn't get it for the Naval Academy, but I did for West Point <laughs> and I did for the Air Force Academy, but I decided to do an extra year of prep school just so I could get that nomination, just so I could go to the Naval Academy to be a SEAL. <laughs> I've never heard that story before, Jimmy. You know, I don't tell it to very many. Um, no, I've never heard it from anybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's some serious insult you're throwing toward West Point and the, the Air Force Academy, right? I mean, oh, did you always hate us Army folks or, or the good <laughs> folks in the Air Force? Or how, how I mean, let, let's flesh this out a little bit. Oh, uh, well, I mean, you know, just a full disclosure, right? At the time, you know, there's always this go Navy, beat Army kind of thing and, and, and vice versa. And same with the Air Force Academy. And there's always this inner service um, competition and, and, and rivalry. However, when, when you get boots on the deck, you know, there's just serious respect. And looking back, if I could rewind and I could, you know, just adjust which way the movie went, the operators in the Army um, and especially in the Special Forces community are a cut above the rest, honestly. I mean, just... You know, there at the time I was getting out, the army was actually doing fantastic lateral transfer um, packages for Marine officers. And I had a couple of buddies that were trying to go to selection over in the army side because of you know, the Delta community, in fact, um, and their experiences with those guys and how the consummate professionals they were. Okay, Jimmy, you didn't have to go that far. We we love we love the Marine Corps. Uh, yeah. You love the Army. Let, let, let's go. Let's go back to to young Jimmy Letchford, where you go to the Naval Academy in 1999. Yeah, right. That's a pre 2001 universe country. Yeah, right. So a seated but playing it through wrestling, a, a physical, obviously a very physical sport. You know, you're you're an athlete. You want to figure out where to apply and and go be a wrestler and. Yet you also wanted to serve and and wrestle in a place with a jet out front. Awesome. Right. Now, what was it like 
for 2001 to be sandwiched right in the middle when, cause, cause wanting to be a seal or wanting to be a green beret, wanting to do these things in 1999 is a little bit different than 2001 when your classmates are going to war now. The, the, not your classmates, but the the upperclassmen who have graduated ahead of you, they're, they're going straight to war. Right. So what's going on in your head at the Naval Academy at that time? Well, I mean, yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, at the time, men and women were going to the Naval Academy because, yeah, they knew that they were going to have um, a life of service and they knew that they were going to be giving their time to the country. But, you know, for me, it was like, look, I got to, I got to wrestle division one, which was always a goal for me. I had I got to serve my country. I got to do something with, a, you know, something exciting. I got a great education from one of the greatest institutions that our country has to offer. Right. And then I'd have a job on the back end. I mean, that was one of the things that your community said is like, look, kids come out of college and they don't know what they want to do. They'll go back home or they're looking for a job. And it's like, hey, you thrust into a leadership position. But like at the time, like you said, Jason, like it's it was just you got those things. But you never, you always knew you were on a standby and already, but it was never real until 2001. And when those towers got hit by those planes, I'll, I'll never forget where I was. And I don't think anybody who's lived through this uh, that time will ever forget where they were. But I was in an economics class and one of the other midshipmen walked in and he said, one of the uh, you know, World Trade Center towers just got hit by a plane. And Everyone was just like, what? And then, of course, the entire world tuned into what was happening and the second plane hit. And it was immediate. There were jets flying around the Naval Academy. We were kind of ordered back to our rooms. Um, and, and all the gates were being hardened by the Marines that were guarding it at the time. And one of the things that, I, that was a huge impact um, on my life, there was a gentleman named, he was Colonel Allen at the time. General Allen, one of the most professional Marines I've ever come across. And he was the commandant at the time. They gathered all the midshipmen into, I believe it was Alumni Hall, uh, but is where the, you could fit the entire brigade of midshipmen. And he stood up there and he's like, midshipmen, make no doubt about it. Every single one of you will be going to war. And it was just like at that moment, it went from, hey, I've got a great job when I come out of the uh, out of college, I'll have a great education. I'll be set up with a great network when I go to my job, uh, when, when I leave my service years to we are going to war. And this is exactly what we're all here for. And it was just a very surreal type of um, time. And, and, and everybody in, in those stands was like, wow, it's on. I got goosebumps as you said that. I mean, I can just imagine I've, I've been, I spent a little time at the Naval Academy. My uncle was a graduate, so he loved to take me back and show me how awesome it was, you know, especially after I'd been in the army Yeah, and, yeah. and just imagining all of those young men and women who signed on the dotted line to serve their country. And you've got the commandant coming in saying, you're all going to war. Right. I mean, and that was the snapshot of the conversation, but I mean, once again, he was just stand up and there weren't a lot of Marines on the yard at the time, you know, handfuls, you know, maybe two handfuls of Marines, but he was a commandant and this whole, you know, reset button, you know, it was at the time Marines were those who were on Muse that were on ships were mostly 
the most forward deployed, right? They were, they, they were hitting ports, they were trained, they were ready, you know, the Marine Expeditionary Unit was ready to fight anywhere. And then it turned to the entire military would be deployed. It was, it was kind of crazy. So then what comes next? Because you have a choice, Navy, Marine Corps. I mean, there, there's differences, obviously. You wanted to be a SEAL, but you ended up going, going to the Marine Corps. How did that work out? <laughs> my, my junior year wrestling, um, I, I blew my shoulder out pretty bad and I needed reconstructive surgery this summer, summer and spent that summer with my arms strapped to my chest after having pins put in, you know, long story. But that's the time that my classmates were going to a program called Mini Buds where they, they go down and you know, train with the SEALs. It's essentially like the weeder because it, there were 16 spots, 16 spots for SEAL officers at the time. And it was highly competitive. You can imagine you have highly intelligent kids going to the Naval Academy and just beasts physically. Um, and most of the time, you have great water polo players that were just monsters in the water. And you had long, slow distance guys that could go forever. And then you had a couple ringers, which would normally you get a wrestler or two, a football player or two, and then a guy that just... All he did was train to be a SEAL, right? And so really, really competitive. I didn't go that summer and I was super bummed. You know, in fact, kind of put me back into a, a, in a dark place, right? I, I just, I was so focused on being a SEAL from probably 13, 14 years old. I go to the academy. I, I don't go to West Point. I don't go to the Air Force Academy. I don't go to just the ROTC program. I'm like, this is it. And then, you know, I hurt my shoulder and I'm just like, honestly, I went internal. I just gave up and I was in a dark place, honestly. But I met a Marine on the yard who was a force reconnaissance Marine. And uh, he pretty much pulled me out of my self-loathing. Um, and just, he was a man of service. And you guys probably remember this. There was a CH-46 that was doing a, uh, a VBSS onto a ship. and. Um, unfortunately the, the, the bird clipped a wire and the whole, the whole bird rolled over and a lot of the Marines, um, didn't make it out. Some of them did, a lot of them didn't. And he was the platoon commander at the time. And after these Marines had passed, he spent his life just trying to raise money for the families. He would run triathlons and marathons. And he was just like, I've dedicated my life to these Marines families. And I was like, that's the guy I want to serve with. I want to serve with that guy. And all these years, I was just like, I don't want to be a Marine. I don't want to be a Marine because on the yard, you know, it's mostly Navy guys. And then you have these Marines that are just like over the top with discipline. And, and you have these gun gunnery sergeants running around and like, <laughs> you know, and, and you're just like, whoa, dude, these guys are intense. And they, they told the line, they told the line and, and Marines do that. And so I'd always had this like, oh, I don't want to be with those guys. Like they're, they're crazy. But I met this, um, this captain and I was just like, that's the guy. And I fell in love with the Marine Corps then. And, um, when it was time to service select, I proudly put my name number one U S Marine Corps. And I was so pumped that I got it. And, and I don't have any regrets whatsoever. So he almost became a mentor to you. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, Jason, like I didn't, 
in, in some regards, right. I didn't have a lot of interaction with them, but I, with him, but I met him and just his character, like it just, or it was just this aura about him. I was like, if I could be around this type of individual for my career and knowing at this point, we knew, you know, we're going to war. I was like, this is the type of individual I need to be around. And, uh, it was at this moment where it, it, the light just, it just turned on for me. Okay. So let's, let's go to 2003. Then you're graduating for me. You know, the Q course was special force qualification course was two and a half years. And in that mm-hmm. entire time, what you're training for, what we were training for was to go to war. Right. And there's some element of the mental preparation. There's some element of, you can't really be trained to know exactly what this is going to feel like until you actually get there. Right. What was that experience like for you? I mean, you, you went infantry as well, or you, how do you say selected or chose, chose infantry? Yeah. Well, how Marine goes is um, you go to the basic school and every Marine officer has to go to the basic school. So if you come out of OCS, you go to basic school, or if you come out of um, an ROTC or the Naval Academy, you still have to go to the basic school, which is six months. And it's just general leadership from the Marine Corps. You learn how you basic shoot, move, and communicate. From there, out of your class, you select a number of MOSs, right? And the most competitive is infantry. It's where guys want to be. If you're in the Marine Corps, for the most part, um, you want to be at the tip of the spear. And that's where it is. Because the Marine Corps is structured um, currently. It's structured that every Marine's a rifleman. And the Marine Corps supports that rifleman. And so... I, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's somewhere around 26,000 infantrymen and the rest of the, of the Marine Corps call it 175,000 are there to support. And so artillery and tanks and AVs and, and, um, you know, admin personnel and everything to put those 26,000 Marines on target. And so I selected infantry and I was so stoked when I got it. That was an interesting time for me because I went in and, um, no kidding, got the gung-ho award. It's an award at the the TBS. Um, I got this gung-ho award and I was freaking gung-ho. Like, I really was just like, this is it. This is where I need to be. But I I had some lessons there that, like, I really took on, took it to heart. You know, I I, I really like the leadership. Um, I like the concept that. When I come in contact with whoever it is, and I do this now, and I've kind of always done it, it's like I take a little chip off everybody's block. So it's like I like what they, that person does. I like what that person does, not really that person, you know, or that part of that person. And I just take these things. And um, my platoon commander at the time was a captain. To go and be a, a TBS platoon commander for an officer, it's a, it's, it's a really elite billet. But Captain Todd Mahar had this amazing impact on me because how it was shaking out is you got graded on your academics there and your military skills and physical fitness and all those things that like you would think of and you guys know of a military person, right? But then the other half was how did your peers see you? And at the time, man, I was so gung-ho. I'm halfway through my time at TBS and man, I was a bull in a china shop and like, I would just steamroll people. I don't know if it was just self-centered or what, but I was just thinking to myself, that guy shouldn't be a Marine. She shouldn't be a Marine. And I would just like steamroll people. 
And it was just like one of those things where Captain Mahar pulled me in one time and he's like, hey, you're kicking ass, kid. He's like, but you're steamrolling people and no one likes you. Look at the sheet, all of your physical and your, 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 your academics and, and your military skills are fantastic. But like, you can't lead anybody if like, they don't want to be around you. And I was just like, whoa, like I was just, oh man, like I, it never occurred to me. And I like, I went home and I, yo, grabbed a beer and I was kind of like, man, I got to get my shit together. You know, like if this is how people are thinking of me, like, why, why am I being like that? Do I have to be like that? And, and I was popular in high school. Like I was nice to people. And then I just got this like, <laughs> hey man, like we're going down range. It's time to, it's time to just turn it on. And I thought that's what I needed to do to do so. And it actually, it was the wrong thing for me. And it was the wrong thing for people I was around. And it's just like, no one's going to follow you if they don't, if they don't respect you. And they don't appreciate you. And, you know, there's, they don't want to be around you, you know? And that was, that was heavy for me. Our training is similar. There's the peer process and they would always say, do you play well with others? That's a big thing on a team. Yeah. And so there's always rank, right? And I, I had to get this beat into me as well. I didn't completely understand it. When I went in, I thought, oh, if, if you outrank someone, you just tell them what to do. It's simple. Well, it, it doesn't actually work like that. Right at least not for good leaders. And so, you know, do you play well with others? Right. And I wasn't playing well with others. And, 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 um, I, I got my shit together. I did. And I started putting my arms around people and I was just helping those that I didn't think should be a Marine. And who was I? Like, I wasn't even technically a Marine yet. I didn't, been made, I didn't make it through the basic school. Like I, you know, obviously I've been commissioned, but like I wasn't shit. And, and, you know, the war at that time was just started. Like it was, just happening. The march to Baghdad was just happening. Everything was just coming down at the, the same time on me. And I was just like, man, I got to get my, I got to get my shit together. So I started putting my arms around people and I, and I, and I changed that peer evaluation in a way that like, you know, I don't know if it mattered for me going to the infantry, um, or, you know, getting the MOS infantry or whatever, but I'll tell you what, it had a huge impact on my life. And so then graduate from TBS, I go to IOC infantry officers course, which is a fantastic, a fantastic school. I mean, I have friends that have done a lot of uh, military training and they just, everyone says IOC is one of the greatest schools because you have, you get an infinite amount of rounds. You get all the ranges you want in 29 palms. And yeah, this basics or the IOC starts in Quantico, but you're out in 29 palms. You're at all the army bases. You have you have air assets to, you know, for them to transport you and do elevator ops and, and air, you know, casts like close air support. It's just, they take these lieutenants through one of the most in-depth, high pace leadership courses I think the military has to offer. And yeah, it was, it was awesome. For all the stupid stuff you have to do in the military, every once in a while, they throw you a bone, right? And you get there and you're like, yes, this is exactly where I want to be. This is exactly what I want to be doing. Yeah, it was awesome. And like, but once again, like now some of the guys were rotating off of their billets or that were active duty, right? And so in the Marine Corps, it's generally three years on, two years off, right? So you're, you're deployable for three years and then you're two years in a B billet is what it's called. 
where you're, you know, at a school and you're getting your own education and you might be training other Marines or in your MOS. Well, some of the Marines were coming back, captain types that were on the march up to Baghdad and they were starting to see combat. And Marines for a number of years had never, they hadn't seen combat. Guys weren't coming back with combat action ribbons. And so now it was like, these guys were rotating back into this educational system, right? IOC and TBS. And now they have battle stories. Now they have, you know, um, um, SOPs that they're going to pass on to the other lieutenants. And that's really when it started to get like, man, this is going down. And it's an interesting dynamic. And you guys know this, a lot of what happens in the military is timing. Everybody wanted to be on the front lines at the time. Everyone. And it was just like, you have captains who are teaching young lieutenants that were going to go and be platoon commanders in like two months that had never seen combat. So it was this weird dynamic. And these young lieutenants, myself included, we were just, it was time. And in fact, my wife and I got married February 14th, 2004. I was in the middle of, of TBS because we knew that as soon as I finished TBS, I was starting IOC. And we found a weekend where it was just like, man, we're in love. And we know we're going to get married. Why wait? Like, we should just do this because we're going to turn around and be deployed like immediately. And so, also, just to put this in context for, for the folks out there, because Emily and I did the exact same thing in the middle of the Q course. Your girlfriend or your girlfriends, plural, they, they have no rights whatsoever. Yeah. While you're deployed, there, there's nothing. There is no support. Uh, excuse me, sir, my girlfriend it said no guy ever. Right. Yeah, right. So there's a league, the legal ramifications are, I mean, there is that kind of desire to provide support to your loved one, your wife, when you're about to go to war. Yeah, it's true. That's true. You know, we just like, why put it off? You know, we're madly in love, still are. And it was just kind of like, hey, let's just do this. And so we picked a weekend and I thought we, she's like, man, we found this place in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Racket Club. And like, in eight weeks, put together this amazing wedding with all our friends or whatever. And we're like, man, it's February 14th. And this place isn't booked. Valentine's Day, this is fantastic. Like, it'd be awesome to have an anniversary on Valentine's Day. Like, what idiot wouldn't do this, right? And so she's planning a wedding, I'm planning a wedding. And I was like, babe, look, all I want it to be is open bar for my buddies. That's it. Like, and, and have all our friends there. Whatever it looks like, flowers, all that stuff, like, go for it. Like, I don't, I don't really care. And this is awesome because I'm hooking my buddies up with a great party on Valentine's Day, you know? And it's all you can drink. Yeah, you're doing a lot of work for them, right? Yeah, totally. Like they don't have to plan or schedule and you always get to remember your anniversary date that way. Easy. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it was fast forward. Now we're just like, it's awesome because, you know, it's Valentine's Day and it's our anniversary, but now it's, you know, you guys have been out on Valentine's Day. It's a mess, man. It's like fixed plates and fixed menus. And it's just such a hub love. Man. Like the, we're always home celebrating. So like, I probably would have redone the date if I could, but man, that was an awesome party, an awesome party. Like all young lieutenants, some of them, you know, had already reached their units and, but you all you can drink thing was probably a bad idea. No kidding. And I'm hesitant to say this because some Marines might be like, oh man, really? But um, by the end of the evening, there were Marines and, and we had this on video because we had a, we had a videographer. There were Marines like, fighting with their Mamluk swords 
and which is a extremely ceremonial, you know, and, and ceremonious sword that officers and some staff NCOs and, and whatnot have. And they're beautiful and they're ivory handles and whatever. And these guys are sword fighting in the back of people getting interviewed. And the next morning, you know, we go downstairs, my wife and I, because we didn't obviously partake in all of that. Like we just, we enjoyed ourselves, but most of the time at your wedding, everyone's talking to you. So like, I, don't, I think I admit I had a beer or two, right? So we're completely clear the next morning, we come downstairs and we hear people that weren't even weren't even a part of our wedding in the in the hotel lobby going, did you see those Marines out on town last night? And like, yeah, they were dancing on the bar and, you know, one was sleeping on a bus stop, like wedding closed down. All my buddies went out into town and, you know, Philadelphia doesn't have a lot of Marines. They don't have a lot of service members. This is beginning of 2004 when like shit was really getting real. And the war was the only thing you saw on Fox News. And here are these Marines in their dress blues, which is obviously an amazing uniform. Um, and they're out on town and people are like, yes, Marines. And like, they're probably all drinking for free out in town. Right. But also sleeping on bus, you know, on bus benches and, and up on the bar with their dress blues open and dancing around. And it was just anyway. I, I'm digressing. Yeah, but. Jimmy, nobody ever wants to tell or hear the, the the story about the wedding where the the bar opened up late and and shut down early and everyone went home and nobody did anything of significance. Now, th th those yeah. aren't great stories. And and we strive to to lead our lives in such ways that we have these kinds of stories. For all of you out there who are, who are listening, we're actually there's a video where we can kind of see each other while we record this and. Jimmy just kind of got this shit eating grin on his face the whole time we're doing this. Like just thinking about that experience of Marines in 2004, war is at the forefront and you're just going to do it up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm withholding a lot of information because it's probably not appropriate, but let's just say that, um, man, what, what, a, what, a, what a fun time, but fast forward, right? I finished IOC and one of my other lieutenants, we were, we, uh, got, First Battalion, First Marines, which is a West Coast unit, and so I had never been. I wrestled in California one or two times. We we came and did a a, a stint of you know wrestling Stanford and, and a lot of the colleges here. But like it was a whirlwind, you know. He's like you'd wrestle two teams and then you'd get on a bus and you go up, spend the night in some you know Motel Six style hotel, and then you wrestle. I'd never been to California other than that, and we were just like. West Coast unit sounds awesome. So you put, you you rank, do I want West Coast, East Coast, Hawaii, or Okinawa is really how, how it went. And I put West Coast and then you put like what your, uh, your other preferences are. I got 1st Battalion, 1st Marines. The final culminating event for IOC at the time, it's probably different now, but at the time was um, a one-month stint out in 29 Palms, really, um, where you are doing everything, you know, it's your oyster. Like you can make a range anywhere as long as you submit a range plan. And so it is miles and miles and miles, square miles of just open desert. And so IOC did it right. We had a great time and me and another Lieutenant met our units. We didn't even go home with the IOC crew. We changed our camis into desert camis and then did it one month stint with our unit doing um, what was called CACs at the time, Mojave Viper, you know, combined arm exercise with our platoon. So 
no kidding, didn't even graduate IOC. And I'm standing in front of my platoon in 29 Palms going, I'm your new lieutenant. And, you know, we're going to Iraq together. And I am like, no kidding, had like a leather face from being out there for a month already. And here I am meeting these guys and I'm like just full of piss and vinegar. And here we go, man, it's, it's time. So what came of that deployment? So we got back, um, I, I graduated, grabbed my stuff. We moved out to the West Coast. My unit is, was um, a Mew unit. And so we went on to a Marine Expeditionary uh, Unit, 15th Mew. We, um, okay, so my son was born right before that. And we go right over, we are floating over to um, offload in Kuwait. Um, we get off in Guam to shoot a little bit and, and refit. And those tsunamis that hit, I don't know if you guys remember those tsunamis, in Indonesia really, really hard. So we had just offloaded all our gear in Guam and those tsunamis hit Indo. And we just reboard and head over there for security ops. Sit on that uh, in the boat for a while. And uh, with uh, I was a Hilo company, platoon commander. And so we just basically did inserts and whatnot uh, on Hilos. And so basically riders were turning the entire three, five days before like this, the rest of the big boats could come and, and sustain. So then we pushed on to, to Kuwait, offloaded, and we went into Baghdad at the time. Our job was to secure all the areas around Baghdad. The dudes were shooting rockets just randomly into, into Baghdad. And so me and my guys, we'd get out, we'd do long, long patrols, um, stay out in the brush, you know, five, 10 days at a time, just hunting bad guys. It was, it was kind of a cool experience. In fact, did that seem about right? I mean, relative to what you'd signed up for? Yeah, it was definitely like that. Those kind of operations at the time were exactly what you trained for in the old Marine Corps, right? It was you patrol, you'd send, you know, set up a patrol base, dig in, right? And so dig big holes to, to give yourself some coverage from any kind of indirect fire or, or rounds. And then you'd send out squad patrols to go take, get intelligence or, you know, instigate the enemy, if you will. But that was very very traditional Marine Corps. And so it's it like right in the wheelhouse for what we, we had trained for. And we did great work. You know, we rounded up a bunch of bad people one way or another and found a lot of weapons caches. And, you know, it was, it was a great, it was a great mission. We, I come home from that deployment. My son's 10, 10 months old. It was great. Like I was so nervous that he wasn't even going to remember me. And like, we just had this moment. It was just like, he lit up and I lit up when it was just like, it, it was as if I was never gone. And so that fear went away and then you're back at it at the time. You guys know how it was at, at that time, you know, you're back to training. And a lot of people don't realize that Marines, soldiers, airmen, Navy, you know, when they deploy, they're downrange, obviously. But when you come back, you get a couple minutes, you get a couple minutes to just relax, decompress, and then you're back training again. And a lot of that training time is gone. You're gone training. You're out on the ships or you're doing operations. You're out on long patrols or doing these combined arm exercises and whatnot. And so it's not really like a downtime. But the second time we went to Iraq, we flew, we flew directly over. Originally, we were stationed in Camp Fallujah. And then my company bounced all around. We we were outside of the outside of the city of Fallujah. There were a lot of rat trails where when the enemy was, you know, scooting into Fallujah inside of our, you know, at the time we had Fallujah would have was a full perimeter and the city was safe. 
mostly safe, but there were snipers coming in. There was a lot of um, terrorist activity running in and out of the, of the city, VBIDs, you know, vehicle-borne IEDs. And so my unit took over a hotel right outside of, of Fallujah, and we operated out of it, hardened it up, and it was, it was just raw. You know, a lot of a lot of a lot of things going on, and it was just it was definitely a, a an interesting time. So, what's it like leading, protecting, serving beside the Marines that are under your command? You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. The Marine Corps pushes subordinate subordinate leadership. Really, you know, Marines come first. Your Marines eat first. You know, it's all about the Marines. Your Marines. Your Marines. And that's a fantastic leadership, um, whether you're in business or whether you're leading Marines or soldiers or, you know, a not-for-profit or your family, it's subordinate, you know, give, give more than you take, you know, you, you learn so much from doing so, right. And being around Marines, especially in combat time, like you form this camaraderie, this brotherhood, you, this, this, like, I would do anything for you, no matter what type of um, relationship. And whether you're an officer, whether you're a staff NCO, um, or whether you're just like a you know young lance corporal or whatever, serving next to a brother like that is is something that I can't explain. I can't explain. What would you say the greatest challenge for you as a leader was then? Two things. Um, you know, keeping Marines vigilant. You get over there. Look, Marines do like six, seven month deployments. It's very different than the Army. Uh, as I understand it, most army units are at the time are doing 12 month, 14 month, in some cases, 18 month deployments. And the Marine Corps did it differently. It was just like, hey, we'll go in for six months, seven months. We're going to rage. I mean, we're just going to go, but then you're, then we're going to go back. Whereas the army goes in, it's just a little more, do a little bit more pace. Um, and it made sense because you couldn't go, you couldn't go at a 10 for 12 months or 14 months. It just no one could do it. Abu Ghraib prison. This was just after, you remember those um, service members were taking pictures of the prisoners and then it got out and <laughs> man, did that instigate the enemy to like really start picking up, op, you know, their operations. And so Abu Ghraib prison was used as a, as a forward operating base. There was an army unit in there and some special forces guys and a couple other like support staff. So the prison was actually in there and was still utilized as a prison. And then the rest of it was a forward operating base. Well, after these prison, the photos got out, the place started getting mortared, um, like crazy rockets, small arms fire, sniper fire coming from buildings. That whole thing, the whole prison was, it was obviously not engineered proper because there were hotels that sit, no kidding, 10 stories higher than the prison itself. And so people could just look in to the prison. And so there'd be sniper fire coming from there. So long story short, my unit, my company was tasked with going in there and, and cleaning up some of the mess. And it was just like, we were, we got a little comfortable inside of the, the hotel and we knew the area, we knew the people, we knew the players. And that's a lot of what you're doing, right? It's just, you know, the faces, you know, Oh, that thing wasn't on the road yesterday kind of thing. Um, and so now we're going into a whole new battle area on the other side of Fallujah with Route Michigan going right through it, right? Route Michigan was the road to 
it was the I-5 interstate from Fallujah to Ramadi to, it's just their I-5 interstate where all U.S. service members were just, and, and if you were in Iraq, you would go on down Iraq, Michigan. And so Abu Ghraib was right next to it. The hotels were right next to Abu Ghraib. And then there was this nasty little market right next to Abu Ghraib where a lot of action happens between Fallujah and Ramadi. And so people would come and meet and they'd give whatever they'd give to their, you know, terrorist buddies or whatnot. But we went in there and we were tasked with cleaning it up. And I'll tell you what, like, we did a great job. Um, and we went hard. We always had units out of outside the wire. And the truth was, is the Marines were getting um, extremely complacent just because they were getting callous to, you know, things that were happening out in, out in space. And from small arms fire to, you know, um, IEDs and, and, and things that were going down inside of the market, it was always hard to be like, guys, we got to stay vigilant. You know, we got, we have to, you know, keep up the pace because you, you know, you can become, yeah, you just, you drop your guard, you drop your guard. And there were some points where we dropped our guard and, and, and we suffered for it. That, that's a constant because when you lose your focus, become complacent with what's going on around you, you, you almost become comfortable in a really bad situation. And when you lose that key focus, then you're going to start making mistakes and you start get, get people killed. Right. Yeah. And it, and it, it happens. We, we had, you know, we lost some buddies. We, we lost, uh, we lost good Marines. I don't know if they can call it, chalk it up to complacency or not, but that was always the battle, right? You're going outside the wire and it, it, no kidding. It was only six hours ago. You were coming in. That was the pace we were keeping. And there were always guys out, always guys out. And it was just like, you know, soldiers and, and, and Marines all in the same battle space. And so there was like, you know, you had interviewed coordination, people rolling through on route Michigan. And so you have units coming in and units coming out and people, I mean, it was wild, but you just kind of get used to it. And that was the problem. Right. And so when there was form, we just called him the Fallujah sniper. There was a sniper that was highly effective. You know, he was, he and his team were rolling around. They, okay. So they would roll around in a vehicle. So a driver and then in the back seat, of the sedan you remember you know those like little triangle windows that are right um to the rear of the back seat passenger window yep. well that yeah that thing was broken out or whatever so you had the shooting unit and then you'd have a spotter somewhere inside of inside of the market and you couldn't i mean everyone looks the same the enemy's not wearing enemy clothing they're just looking the same and there's just people shopping and moving around in vehicles like there's no traffic patterns and it's, it's just man manic and you have marines scattered all over the place in uh, guardian angel positions up on up on rooftops and you know along alleyways and just patrolling interfacing with very very friendly iraqi people and shop owners and people that are happy that we're there and intermingling with people that we don't know that don't want us there you know and it, you just don't know what's going on and you know, this the sniper, you know, he took, he took one of my Marines and it was, it was, um, in a guardian angel position. And that was a really heavy, heavy day for, for our entire unit, obviously. Um, 
it, it, it was it was just one of those things that you you look back on all the time and you say, like, what could we have done different? You know, what would have changed those those circumstances? You know, that day. You know, and it's one of those heavy things that you just can never let go. Um, yeah, that, here's the other thing too. There were moments in that deployment prior to me losing, um, Ricky Waller was his name. Great motivated young Marine team leader promoted to squad leader just because of his, his gung ho-ness. Um, and just like a, don't take shit from anybody kind of dude, uh, wife and three kids at home, young Marine family. Um, but prior to that, the first time, first time we went out to the market and Rich, this was my complacency and this was my law, lack of focus. We get out, we're four months into this deployment, four or five months into this deployment. And we originally got to Abu Ghraib. We roll out on some trucks, um, being a CEO, company commander. I was the XO at the time. And we get out into Kandari market. And stop the trucks in the convoy, people dismount. You know, we'd been hearing about what would have gone on there, but like in come the Marines and we're just like, we got this shit, right? So we get out of the truck and I do exactly what IOC would tell you not to do. We get out and I look exactly like a leader. You know, I'm getting out, point people, pointing around and whatnot. They break out a map. They break out a map right in the middle of this market. And holy shit. It wasn't 10 seconds later that a round goes right past my right ear. And I mean, inches away from my right ear. And for anybody who's been shot at and really close to being hit with a round, like there is a snap. There is a, there is a, and anybody who's been on a rifle range and pulling targets or whatever, there's a snap and it, depending on the round, it is loud. It is really loud. This went right by my ear and man, I couldn't hear straight for, for months after. But at that moment I was like, holy shit. Like this, that was, it, it was, it was immediate, right? It was immediate, like immediate actions. Everyone like, you know, close on the enemy, do the whole, you know, the gig. Right. But when I came down from that entire adrenaline thing, I was just like, holy shit, man, that would have been it. Like that was it. And my wife's at home pregnant with my, my second child who was born four months into the deployment, like three days after this whole thing happened, I call her on a sat phone after a long operation. And, I'm, and um, my dad's like, congratulations. I'm like, what? He's like, you didn't get the Red Cross message. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, your daughter was born <laughs> two days ago. You know, we sent a Red Cross message and I'm like, well, shit, I didn't know. So I hang up the phone and I call the hospital that she was at on the sat phone and, and I'll never forget, I'm inside Abu Ghraib and there's like helicopters going around and I'm like, can I speak to my wife? And they're like, sir, it's past visiting hours. And I'm like, I'm not visiting. And they're like, well, it's considered visiting hours. You can't talk. And I'm like, ma'am, do you hear all that noise? You hear this, like, you guys have been on sat phones, like, yeah. and especially that generation, you can hear it. And then the, actually the noise comes through. And so you're like, Hey ma'am. And then you'll go, Hey ma'am, you know? Um, and there's this audible delay and I'm like, ma'am, do you hear this audible delay delay? She's like, yes. And I'm like, I'm calling from Iraq. My wife had the baby like two days ago. I think she wants to talk to me and they're all like, I don't know. And I'm like, just put her on the damn phone. And so 
this is like 3 a.m. their time. And she's like, oh, she's beautiful and all that stuff. Well, like at that moment, I was like, life was real, right? I was just like, that was when I started to think like, do I want to get out of the military? You know, like how much of this, you know, and this is real talk, you know, like, because there's a lot of bravado and stuff in the military, but like, this is real shit. Like I had almost been shot in the face, you know, a couple of days before I'm like, First daughter was born, you know, right at the same time. And I didn't know about it. And she would have grown up without a father is what I'm thinking. And that's some heavy shit to, to carry around. And, you know, yeah. It's a wake up call. It surely was a wake up call. And I got a whole heck of a lot more, you know, vigilant after that. Um, the biggest lessons I'd learned in, in, in those times, I don't think they were necessarily leadership lessons of leading Marines. You know what I mean? Like it, it was, um, I, I loved being a Marine officer. I love being a Marine officer. Um, I love being an infantry officer. I love my Marines and I loved what I did. In fact, I would do it all over again, you know, but I really realized a couple things being deployed and, and, you know, some of the experiences like number one, like we live in a, freaking awesome country. You know, the, the United States of America is an amazing place to be, you know, and I don't really know that everyone understands that those who have experienced other places or been around and really have been in some of the shit can just go and look back and really appreciate the land that we live on. And it, and I don't know if I took it for granted before I always knew the United States was amazing, but when you start seeing some of the hardships that other people and countries live through the lack of economy and the lack of security daily. You just start going, wow. Like you appreciate a whole heck of a lot more back home. And I still do today. It's one of those benefits of service, especially as you get in, and, and this can be from the Peace Corps. It can be from being a Marine Corps officer in Fallujah in 2004, 2005. You just gain this perspective. I mean, air conditioning and sewage and trash. Like, where does the trash go? It's magic. It just, you put it on your curb and it goes away. Well, internet. I mean, all these things that will just crush your life now if if the trash man misses Christmas day or whatever, right? It's like, hey, it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, for sure. When you say AC, you know, heat. You know, a lot of people don't think Iraq gets cold. Iraq, it gets really cold. You know, some people don't have... They don't have full windows. They don't have full doors. Most of them don't. I mean, the places I was at, they didn't have toilets. It was a hole in the ground. You know, like you said, there wasn't a trash service. It was a pile of trash right outside their home, you know, and they live with, with people that want to do harm. Um, and they will just knock through their door and go for it. All right. So Jimmy, any other big takeaways? We, we spent a lot of time on your Marine Corps service, which I'm always happy to, to do. I mean, I, I, you know, it was around that time that I was, I was in training and you were the the wave right after the first wave. And then, you know, I'm in 2006, 2007, that sort of became when, when I was going over there and stuff. And so I, there's just kind of a kinship of those of us who were there in the earlier days of, of Iraq and stuff. So it's, it, it really takes me back. I mean, when you start talking about the markets and rooftops and indirect fire, I mean, I, I remember what all that feels like, and it doesn't feel like it does in Jack's Beach, Florida, or when we're, we're grabbing a beer at your neighborhood bar in California. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. I mean, for the people listening to this, I don't, you know, some of them, a lot of them may have served, some of them serve in different ways. And I always say this because it really, it, it, I say it for myself. I always say that it's really important for us to remember that right this second, now, no matter when it is, there are people downrange in a firefight right this second. You know, there's a police officer or a firefighter trying to pull somebody out of a burning building, a burning car, you know, or whatever. And it's just like, it's really important for us to remember that right now. And so during those times, everyone was deploying, everyone was downrange, you know, and everyone has their stories. And there were a lot of heroic heroics that were recognized or a lot of heroics that weren't. I witnessed a lot of them that, that weren't, you know, and there's, it's important for us as a, a community to recognize that there is a tip of the spear right this second, you know, going at it. That's the perspective that you carry with you into anything that you do for the rest of your life. It's, it's impossible to remove it from who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. Look, I really appreciate you inviting me on this. Like I was completely honored. I've never done this before. Um, and I was just like, who wants to hear me? <laughs> it's weird, but like, I, I, I really am honored. Well, it's, it's really in those you served with. And I know we, we dug up some difficult memories it's one of those things where I believe that people listening, America as a country, gets stronger and is strengthened when we share what it what it means to serve. And sometimes those are are very difficult moments. And yet, here you are saying, "This is the life I chose, and I'm proud of this life." And there there are difficult parts that come with it. It's it's not clear cut. It's we don't get to go back and say, "Well, I want to serve, but I don't want there to be difficult parts." It, mm -hmm. It's just not how it works. And that's the piece that we all have to make. Yeah. Hey, Jimmy, you have a, you have a very compelling story and you said some really important things. Some of them were hard to say, but it was stuff that, that was good that people need to hear. Thank you. And I thank you for that. Thank you guys. All right. So that's the end of our first part with Jimmy talked about his being a wrestler, joining the Naval Academy, graduating in 2003 going to war with the Marine Corps. What'd you think about his, his story of service, Rich? I, I thought it was a really interesting, uh, the chronology that he went through from being a, a young wrestler and how he made contact with what he was to become without really knowing it. He was just, he was going through events. He was going, he was wrestling at different places and he ended up going to Annapolis, to the academy. And outside sets this great jet. It's kind of the all-American story to a certain degree. So and, to me, the takeaway of that was Jimmy's dad. You know, and, and yeah, there was the wrestling, but his dad supported his his son. They they went to the Naval Academy. There was wrestling. I mean, maybe it was happenstance, at least in part, but you know, you keep coming back. I mean, there's there's kind of a an exposure that you're given. It, it's, I just got the sense that a seed had been planted. Yeah. And I don't know if it was an intentional seed, but it was a seed nonetheless. It, it was great. His, his dad was very supportive of what he was doing. And by supporting him, it ultimately led to a, a life of service. His entire life has been service in some way to some communities, because oftentimes it ultimately morphs into service for country. That's really what it's all about. We just don't know how to put those words on it as young people. 
you're kind of too young to understand it. Yeah. You don't realize what that says. I mean, you may say, I want to serve my country, but yeah, you, your mind, you don't put it in those frames of reference when you say, I want to serve. When you say, I want to serve as a young person, it's, I want to serve as a Marine. I want to serve as a SEAL. I want to serve as a Green Beret, whatever it might I be. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a cop. I want to be a soldier. I want to be a doctor. I want to drive a truck. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and so it's it's service, and you 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 don't realize as a as a young person what that actually means. And as I said, it morphs later on, and you begin to understand the real meaning of service. So whether it's your own kids, whether it's your your neighbors. We all have more influence on others than we think, especially when it comes to, to our nation's youth and providing them some degree of exposure to, to other things, to talking about your service. If you've served and you're proud of your service, and almost everybody is, I mean, yes. throwing dishonorable discharges and stuff aside, right? I mean, everybody is proud of their service. Absolutely. And everybody's proud to serve. Everybody's proud to serve. And and so it can be uncomfortable to share that at times. And, and you could sense that with Jimmy. I mean, there is a part of him that, that died on that battlefield as well. Yeah. And that's just, you don't ever get that back, but it does give you the other things that he spoke about, his perspective, his love of country, his love of community, his love of Marines. Yes. It's just one of those things, you've said this before, you just can't make sense of some stuff. You have to pick yourself up and, and keep going. And you could sense the discomfort. It's, it's not a natural thing. And yet I also sensed that he was grateful for the opportunity to talk about his Marines. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the proudest thing that a good leader has going for them is not themselves, but it's about the people they lead. That's what it's all about. A good leader honors and cherishes those that they lead. And you could, you could tell that in listening to Jimmy. He really believed in his Marines. From his first meeting with them at 29 Palms, hi guys, I'm your platoon leader, and we're going to Iraq together. And then later as it developed, as his his interaction with them developed both in the training and the preparation phase and in the actual deployment, that he was so proud of the guys that he was leading. I think what's important and that came through to me, in, and it'll show in both of these episodes, is his, his maturing and that he was, he was mentoring his Marines. And then later on as he went into CrossFit and mentoring those people that his whole life bridges a life of service to different communities, but service nonetheless. And I think that's important to a lot of the veteran community because without realizing it, we have found our niche in life. I didn't realize it till much later as, uh, in, in my life. My whole life has been about service. Your life has been about service. Jimmy's life has been about service. And the people that we talk to, many of them, on these episodes. It's all about a continual life of service in different areas, in different venues, in different ranges, but it's all about a life of service. And that truly serves the nation and gives back 
to our way of life and our freedoms and our country. Thanks so much for listening to Glorious Professionals. That was part one with Jimmy Letchford. Part two is up next.